Wonderful to be together this morning. It seems like the Lord has given us a beautiful day so far, and we're glad that you're with us today. It is a wonderful time, any time when the people of God can come together and sing praises to His name, fellowship together, give, and then open up the Word of God, as Dave has already mentioned. Open up the Word of God and read it, expound it. We are privileged people. We're privileged people. I would encourage you to open your Bibles and turn to uh, John chapter 8. John chapter 8. We just want to look at one verse. Try to expound on this one idea of Christ. John chapter 8 and verse 34. John 8.34 says this. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you. Thank you, Lord, for bringing us together. It is, it is wonderful, Lord, to be together as your people, uh, as a congregation. Uh, we just... We are overwhelmed as we sung this morning. We, we enjoy it, but it's also just profound in the sense that we are united in Christ Jesus and that He is what brings us together and gives us the confidence, the boldness, the grace in our life to, to even approach Your throne. And Lord, even on top of that, to think that you said if there's two or three are gathered, gathered, that you are here in our midst. And Lord, that is just profound to us. Lord, may we glorify you in everything that we do. May we glorify you as we open your word and hear what you have to say. And then, Lord, may we be awestruck. May we be profoundly moved by your word today. And we just, we are so thankful. We're privileged. And so grateful for what you have done in our hearts and our lives to bring us together to this point today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, for the next uh, few weeks, I want us to uh, talk about the subject of salvation. I want us to deal with the subject of salvation. I mean, if we are a church, as individuals, as a corporate body, have come together and we have been entrusted with the truth as we have been looking at in First Timothy and then as we see that God has set us apart last sermon, last week, He has set us apart, then we better make sure that we get this message correctly. I mean, He has set us apart. He's given us a special message, and we better make sure that we handle it accurately. I mean, we are distinct people with a distinct message, and we better get it right. And so I want to deal with this subject of, of salvation. And I want to look at this subject. I want to, us to see salvation through the lens of God's grace. And we would all recognize, we would all acknowledge that salvation is a, a gift from God. It is something from His, His grace. It was a gracious gift from Him. Now, some, though, would say that it was just His common grace. It's just kind of a generic thing that His common grace has given us salvation. 
But when I look in Scripture, when I look in Scripture, I see something deliberately. I see something intentional. I see an active God who is, who is doing things specifically, not haphazardly. And He's doing it for His glory. And He wants us to see His power in salvation. He wants us to see that. And if we don't see His grace, that's, that's where the power lies. And if we miss that part, if we don't see the grace in salvation, then we are missing the power of God. And we're missing the very glory of God that we are supposed to see. And it's particular. It's specific. In every little element of grace. And you, you may have heard the, the phrase, the doctrines of grace. And it's talking about salvation. I always wonder, why, why doctrines of grace? It's because every little element of these doctrines elevate. They emphasize a certain aspect of God's grace to man. And I want to pull those out. I want to pull those out because we see that within that, we see God's power at work. We see God's grace. We see His majesty and, and grandeur. We see His power. And the first place that we have to, to turn in dealing with the doctrines of grace, the grace of God in salvation, is, is this area of our sinful nature, our sinful condition. Our sinful condition. And we know that, that right off, right out of the gate, the early church had to deal with this subject of how sinful are we? What is the nature of man? Back 354 A.D., the church has been to, been together for about a hundred, or well, two or three hundred years there. And you have these two men that were born on the, in the same year. You have first Pelagius. Now Pelagius, he taught, he would look at the city and he said, this city is just corrupt. We've got to get rid of this, the sinfulness of this city. And, uh, and he says, now look, we can do something about this. Man's nature, he says, is, is still healthy. It's still good. It really wasn't affected by sin. And that, that would be a paraphrase, obviously. It, it wasn't affected. And, and you have Pelagianism. And it was a, a, a type of teaching. It was a, a way of thinking. And some of the church kind of bought into that. But then Augustine stood up. And he was born the same year as Pelagius, and he said, no, man's, <clears throat> man cannot do anything about his sinful nature, his sinful condition, because he is dead in his sins. He's dead to sin. Dead in his sins. His na sinful nature is profoundly affected, and he is completely unable of doing anything about his sinfulness. And then the church came together, and uh, there were several meetings, of course, councils that came together. And, and then out of that, some of that, out of some of those meetings, came this doctrine of semi-Pelagianism, where you have the nature of man is just sick. It's not healthy. We recognize, yeah, it has some effect, but it's not dead. It's just kind of sickly, sick. Now you say, well, which one is right? You say, well, there, there's three equal views there. We could, we could first of all say, take, to compare the two extremes, dead and healthy, and say, well, no, we'll just compromise and put it right in the middle, right? I mean, that's the way we think. We develop our theology that way. Some people do that. That's a bad way, by the way, to do theology. 
Or we could say, well, we'll look at the character of the man and whichever one we like the best or whichever one is the most godly, then that's the one we'll choose. Or we could say, no, I'm just going to base it upon my own experience. I kind of know that I'm sinful, so, you know, and we just base it upon our own experience. Again, bad ways to do theology. We do not discover truth from our own experience. So what do we do? The answer to that. We are a Bible church. We go to the Bible. And that's what we have to do. We see what the whole counsel of God says. What does Scripture say about man's sinful condition? How bad is it? How bad are we? And I want to do that today. I want to lay that out for us. And there's multiple scriptures that we can look at. But I just, uh, and we'll look at some of them. But for lack of time, we can't look at all of them. We're going to start with what Christ said. In John chapter 8, in verse 34, he gives us one little nugget here. One little, uh, just this little phrase that just, if we unpack it, there's a whole lot there that talks about the sinful condition of man. And here's what it says. Truly, truly, I say unto you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. Now, that's Christ's perspective. Here's what I want you to see. You'll see it on the screen. The nature of man is so totally corrupt that mankind is unable to do anything to remedy his sinful condition. Is unable. Unable. And the question we'll look at, question I believe Christ answers for us today here is, What is the condition of man's sinful nature? How bad are we? How bad is our sinful condition? There's two characteristics, I believe, that that Jesus uh, points out here. Both of them are dangerous. Both of them are deadly. If we do not understand these two elements of sin, we are hopeless. The first one, again, you'll see this on the screen. Sin enslaves mankind, rendering us powerless to our sinful nature. Now that's Christ's point, right? That's what he says. Everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. And we have all committed sin, and therefore we are all slaves to it. Sin is in control. Sin is in control. The word uh, slave there means a a, a legally... um, A binding contract between two people that this one person owns another person. And it's a legal binding contract. Then that person has control over that other person. Controls his life, controls his purpose, and everything else uh, that's related to that person. It's total control. And it's legal. It's a legal binding element. Paul said this, he says, when you were, now he's talking to the Roman people who were believers, he says, when you were slaves to sin, he's referring back to their old, before they were saved. He says, when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regards to righteousness. You didn't do righteousness, why? Because you were slaves to sin. And then he goes on, he says, now you're slaves to righteousness, but you're free from sin. That's interesting. But he says, we were slaves. It's the same concept that Jesus was using. In Titus 3.3, he goes on, and Paul gets a little bit more specific here. He says, we were slaves to various passions and various pleasures. Passing our days, he says, in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. 
So you kind of get an idea here this, that he's, he's kind of pulling this together. We were slaves to our own passions, to sinfulness. Now, when we're all slaves of the same thing, when we're all slaves of sin, it's easy for someone to just come in and lead us about. And John reminds us that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Essentially, we're slaves to Satan himself. Satan and this world and sin. And we're slaves. And the implication is we cannot free ourselves. We cannot do anything about this. This is a legally binding thing. We are slaves. Now, some people say, well, we have free will. Well, that's not really scriptural. If we did, then we could just walk away from sin. But our sin, our will is enslaved to sin. The Old Testament, Job said this, he says, who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean thing? You can't. You can't do that. It's a rhetorical question. It can't be done. Jeremiah 13, he says this, can the Ethiopian change his skin? The answer is no. You can't. He says, can the leopard change his spots? No, the answer is no. Again, rhetorical question. And he and he's proving something, he says. He goes on to say, then also you can do good who are accustomed to doing evil. We cannot change our very nature. We are bent toward that way. Again, Christ lays this out for us. Matthew chapter 7. Go ahead and turn over there. This is a good passage for you to just to be aware of. Matthew chapter 7, verse 16. Now, I want to hit a lot of verses. We'll try to move through them quickly. Matthew 7, verse 16 says this. Let me go back to verse 15. Beware of the false prophets. So you get the context here. You get to understand what he's saying. Who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. Now, he's, he's going to get down to the very nature of these people in just a second. You will know them by their fruits. He says, grapes are gathered from, grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles are they. So anyone, or any, or every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. He's talking about the very nature of that. The very nature of this tree is bad, so it's going to produce bad fruit. And comparing to these men, the very nature of these men are ravenous wolves. They can, they can pretend to be sheep, but their very nature is wolves. And he goes on to say in verse 18, A good tree cannot produce good fruit, nor can a bad tree produce bad fruit. Now the implication... These are bad men. The very nature is bad. And they cannot produce. They cannot do good. They need to be changed on the inside. And that is the condition of man. We need to be changed on the inside. Now that's, that's the very heart of what sin is. It enslaves us. That's what sin is. Let's go to some theologians. One theologian says, uh, Ennis, he says this, sin is transgression against God's law. We understand that. I mean, that's not a surprise. It's a failure to commit or to conform to God's standards. But he goes on to say, he said, it is a principle within man. It is something within man. 
It's not just committing these uh, outward things, breaking God's law, not conforming to God's standard, but there's a principle within man. He says it's a rebellion against God, a wrongful act toward God and man. Stott, a noted theologian, John Stott, he says this, sin is hostility toward God, issuing in active rebellion against Him. Active rebellion. That's what sin is. Sin has willful, defiant, disloyal qualities to it. And that's what sin is. We have sin in us, and that sin is in rebellion against God. It's in rebellion against God. One theologian said this. He said, sin is the deification of self. It means we're, we're elevating self to the point of deity. And he says, and dethroning God. We're bringing God down. And that's, again, that's what sin is. It's the very nature of sin. It's a rebellion against God. Yet sin, Erickson says this, yet sin is not merely wrong acts or thoughts, but sinfulness. Sinfulness. It's a condition Sinfulness as well. An inherent inner disposition inclining us to do wrong acts and wrong thoughts. Doing things our own way. Rebellion against God. He goes on to say, uh, we're not simply sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. You know that phrase. The thing is, is we think we are in control. But in reality, sin has gripped us, sin has enslaved us, and we cannot free ourselves. We cannot stop sinning. You say, well, I've stopped. I've, I've stopped doing this, and I've stopped doing this. Listen, here's what we do. We will move from one pet sin to something that's, that's less, uh, maybe less noticeable, maybe, maybe less dangerous, maybe a little bit more accepting, but it's still sin. It's still sin. That's what we are. You say, what's the solution? Turn over to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. Now you need to see this. This is, this is an important passage. Romans chapter 6 and verse 5. Paul says this. And he makes it just so clear. In these two verses. Romans chapter 6 and verse 5. Here's the answer. It says, for if we have become united with him. That's Christ. In the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be also be uh, in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that the that our old self was crucified with him. That's Christ in order that this body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. What's the answer to our slavishness to sin? It's our union with Christ. Christ is the answer. We have to be united with Christ. He takes our sinfulness. We take His righteousness. And we have, there's a union there that takes place. And it's the work of Christ. It's a demonstration of Christ's grace. We have to be born again. We have to be new people, Jesus says in John chapter 3. And Christ alone has the power to render us sinless. To render us free from sin. And we got, What do we do then? We throw ourselves on the mercy seat of God. 
And say, God, I can do nothing about my sinful condition. All I can do is acknowledge it. And I repent from it. And I turn from my sin. And I turn to Christ. And I cling to Him. And I unite myself with Him. I follow Him. I become His disciples. I learn from Him. I submit myself to Him. And that's exactly what Paul did. But isn't Paul, what Paul said? Paul said, I have died and my life is now in Christ. That's grace, folks. And that is power. Christ can turn people around. He can set them free. If we are united with Christ, and this is an act of God's grace, and it takes His initiative, He has to do this. He has to do it. Now, if we don't, if we don't see this, we're missing the very power of God in our own life. We're missing, we're, we're not seeing it. But when we begin to see our sinful condition as enslaved to sin, and we powerless to do anything about it, but then all of a sudden Christ comes into our lives and we're set free from that, then we begin to see Christ, the grace of God, and Christ's incredible work on the cross. And it's just like Paul said when he, was, when he went into uh, the Corinth. He says, I didn't come with uh, great words. He said, I come in weakness and fear and even trembling. And he says, but, but it was the message. You received the message and it had power in it. Now, pa- Paul wasn't talking about power to, to, change, uh, to, uh, to do miracles. It was power to change a life. And the Thessalonians, they did the same thing. They recognized this is the Word of God. They accepted it and it changed their life. That is power. That is power. And we were enslaved to sin. And the only way out is, is union with Christ. So our sinful nature. Before union with Christ, we are still enslaved to sin. Let's go on. Number two. Sin renders man blind. Blind to his sinful nature. Now, it's one thing to be a slave. It's another thing to not even know that you're a slave. To be blind to your condition. But that's exactly the situation that Jesus finds these men here. Now, let me give you... Go back to John chapter 8. Here's the context. John chapter 8. In verse 31, Jesus says now... He he has some believers. These believers, they're beginning to follow Him. And Jesus said now, if you continue in My Word... Then you're truly my disciples. And he said, now, my word will make you free. And if my word makes you free, you will be free indeed. Right? You, you, rem- you remember that? Well, the scribes and Pharisees, they responded to that. And they said, oh, wait a second. Wait a second. We have Abraham, verse 33. We have Abraham uh, as uh, we are descendants of Abraham. We have this whole salvation thing fixed. We are descendants of Abraham. And so our salvation is is secure. Why? Because they're Descendants of Abraham. And Jesus, you can see him shaking his head. And he says, and they go on. And and in fact, it shows how desperate they are grasping at straws here. And and Jesus had said, now my truth will set you free and you'll be free indeed. And they go on to respond to that. And yet, he says, and have never been enslaved to anyone. They don't even recognize their their slavishness. Now, they're forgetting they were enslaved to the Egyptians, right? Jesus is, uh, and they know this, they just don't want to admit it. At this point, at this time, and Jesus is talking with them, they're enslaved to the Roman guards. They're enslaved to Rome, the Jews were. They didn't want to recognize their enslavement. 
But Jesus goes past those physical things and he says, you're enslaved to sin. You don't even, you don't even see that. You're not recognizing the obvious and specifically you're, you're enslaved to sin. And you don't even know it. Sin has a blinding element. Sin, it, it, it enslaves us, but it makes us think that we are in control. It makes us be blind to our own nature. It's just like the Judges, isn't it? In the book of Judges, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Jeremiah said, the heart is deceitful above all things, desperately sick. Who can understand? We can't even, we can't even understand it. We can't know it. Paul said in 1 Corinthians, the natural man does not accept the spirit, the things of the spirit. He says it's folly to him and he cannot even understand it. That's how blind we are. And it's because of sin. Um, in Ephesians, Paul, Paul says it talks about the, the darkness of our understanding and it's due to our, um, uh, hardness of heart. It's again, it's our sin. In Titus 1.15, Paul says this, to the, to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure because both, of, both their mind and their conscience are defiled. So we can't even trust our own instincts. We cannot even trust our own perception. Our own perception is blinded to the reality of our sinfulness. And the passage that was read for us earlier in Romans chapter 3, Romans 3, verse 11, he says, Who can understand? No one understands. No one is righteous, not even one. No one understands. No one seeks after God. And at the end, he says, there's no fear of God in in their eyes. They are oblivious to their sinful condition. In Romans chapter 8, I've got to just mention this one other passage. Romans 8, he says in verse 7, he says this, Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God. That's our sinful mind. We're hostile toward God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God. I will not do what you want me to do, God. I will do my own thing. I will not obey your law. He says, for it is not even able to do so. That's pretty clear. Is not even able to do so. And he goes on to say, and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. That's pretty clear. Man's sinful condition, there's nothing we can do. Why? Why is it that we are so uh, blind to our own sinfulness? Well, the key word is we are dead. We are dead. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says this, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, just like everybody else, according to the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. He's working in all of us. He's moving this whole world. He's leading us. According to the... uh, Among them, we formerly... Now, this this is the way we used to be. We were dead in our trespasses and sin, Formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And were by nature children of wrath. We were under God's wrath by very nature and we didn't even know it. And here's, here's the key words. But God. Listen, we were, we were enslaved and we were blind. And we would not even know our sinful condition, except for God. And He interjects, but God, being rich in mercy, 
because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, He what? Made us alive. Made us alive to together with Christ. Again, there's that union with Christ. He raised us up with Him. That's the right picture. Listen, I'm beginning to think that Augustine had something here. He used the right term. We are dead. We are unable to do anything about our sinful condition. And Paul sees that. Why is it so hard for us to understand that? I think there's a couple reasons. And I want to just I want you to see the flow of thought here. There's a couple reasons. We, we can't really get a glimpse, but I want to help us to try to get a glimpse of this. Number one, we don't understand the standard. We just see the standard as our own righteousness here. We don't understand the standard. We don't understand how far we have fallen. Turn over to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis 1 tells us where we are supposed to be. Genesis 1 verse 26 says this, Then God said, Let us make man in our image. Now, we've read this verse many, many times in this pulpit. Let us make man in our what? Our image, just like us, in our likeness. And let them rule over the fish of the sea. Now, we are to be in the image of God. We are to be miniature forms of God. We are obviously limited, but we are to have the image of God. He stamped that image on us in His likeness. One, it's kind of like this. Let me try to explain this. God is, God is spirit, right? You can't see spirit. Some people say, well, I saw a ghost. No, you don't see a ghost. There's spirit. There's a spirit world. They don't have any physical properties. God says, I'm going to create this world. I'm going to create this universe. And He does. And it's beautiful. He creates this world. And He puts at the center of this, uh, this world, man, in His image, in His likeness. In His likeness. And that is to be His representation on earth. There was one commentary that I read pointed this out. I thought this was really interesting. We are not to make any graven images. Remember that passage? Why? Because we are the image of God. We are the image of God. We are representing His glory. We represent His authority. This same commentary goes on to say that the word image there is almost like a statue. A physical statue of, uh, you, you know, these Greek statues. And they would represent that, that person and the authority and the, the glory that that person had. Man was in a prominent position in all of God's creation. And he shared with God in God's rule. And man was to rule over this earth. We were to glorify and display God's image. God's likeness here in a physical realm. And remember, God is spirit. And he wants, he wants the whole heavenly host to see his image. What he would be like if he were physical. Now, that's a poor image. And it's a small image. It's a limited image. But we are to reflect God's glory. All that God is. His love and his goodness and his beauty and his purity and his justice and His splendor and His power and His wisdom and His majesty. Listen, that's hard for us to even imagine. But that's where we are supposed to be. That's what we are supposed to be like. 
And it's hard because of our sinful, corrupt minds that we can't even imagine that. But that's the way we are supposed to be. And we say, well, I'm only human. Only human? There's nothing only about being human. That human is in the image of God. It is in the likeness of God. And you know the rest of the story. Sin came into the world. And because of that, man is sinful. And Paul says, we fell short of God's glory. We fall short of it. We're not there. We don't reflect God's glory like we once were, once did, or once that we should. And we marred God's glory. You say, well, well, God wouldn't want us to go back to the Garden of Eden and and live like that again and, and be His glory all over again. Yes. Yes, that's what it is supposed to be. That is, that is the standard. He says, you are to be holy just like you, your heavenly Father is holy. That's the standard. We are to go back to this, this glory that we are to reflect from God. That is the standard. We are to be holy just like He is holy. What is our condition now? How far have we fallen? Well, sin has affected our actions. It's affected our actions, hasn't it? We cheat and we kill. We still commit adultery, drunkenness, overeating, excessive spending, inappropriate relationships, viewing pornography. And that's just the actions. That's just the tip of the iceberg. It gets worse as it goes down. There's things that we don't do, that we're supposed to do. Giving and helping other people, loving other people, being discerning. Things that we are supposed to do that we don't. Our words are affected. We don't build people up like we are supposed to do. In fact, we tear them down and we let unwholesome words come out of our mouth. We blaspheme God. Our motives are affected. Or we can't even trust them. Why? Because we're motivated many times out of hate, out of, out of pride, out of selfishness, out of greed, out of revenge. Our motives are effective. Our thoughts are affected as well. Impure thoughts. Coveting. We covet our neighbor's wife. We covet our neighbor's car, our neighbor's house. And with our thoughts, we plan evil things, the Bible says. Our impulses are wrong. Our reactions are now out of fear or out of anger or out of judgment toward other people or self-righteousness. That's our reactions. Our character is flawed. We are no longer faithful. We are disingenuous, irresponsible. Our beliefs have been affected. We don't believe in God. We are atheists. We don't believe in Christ. Our roles have been reversed. Our roles have been changed as a husband, as a mother, as a son, as a worker. We become irresponsible. We become authoritarian. We become lazy. And our whole perspective is wrong. That's how bad we are. So, well, I'm not as bad as I could be. You're right. You're not as bad as you could be. And it's only because of the grace of God. But our perspective is wrong. Our perspective, we live in darkness. 
The world lives in darkness and, and blindedness to God's glory. And they think they're okay. And it's sometimes easy for us as a church or easy for us as Christians to think that, that we're okay. And that sin hasn't had that much of an effect on us. And it hasn't affected us too, too badly. But I believe that sin has done a very good job at blinding us to our own sinful condition. Our eyes are closed and they need to be opened. They need to be opened to our sinful condition. You say, well, how does that happen? Well, you have the conscience, right? Our conscience, that should tell us something. You know, that should guard us. That should keep us away from doing evil. Yeah, it does. It does help. But our conscience can accommodate our own thoughts, can it? And our conscience can be seared. We can, we can turn off that little uh, device what about the law? The law tells us that we're sinful. Yes, in fact, in the passage that we uh, that Dave read for us earlier, it's the law that uh, says that exposes us to our sinful. It tells us how sinful we are. And we try to keep that, and we realize, man, we are we are pretty sinful. But that can only go so far. It, it doesn't it doesn't convict us, does it? It doesn't break us, does it? We've been seeing these murders in the news. There's just taking note of this one guy and he was just very calm and killed six people i believe and um he was just as calm as can be he was convicted he knew he did it and the law said yeah you're you're guilty and and he yeah i i'm not going to say anything at this time i think he's what he said he's not convicted he's not broken over his sinfulness he acknowledges it he recognizes it yeah okay well so well, we can tell people right we can tell people that that way they can know how sinful they are. But we recognize that we're, we're, we're very limited in that. We can tell people of their sinfulness, but, but until they're broken, until they're repentant, they're not really convicted. And what does it take? What does it take? There's one last passage I want you to turn to, and that's John. You may be in John already, but John chapter 16. And I want to show you this is the grace of God. This is the power of God. I mean, it takes something supernatural to wake us up out of our sinful condition because we are so blinded, we do not know. But John chapter 16, here's what Christ said. He said, when I, when I leave, I'm going to have the Holy Spirit come. And he says, the Holy Spirit's going to come. And verse 8, He will come and He will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin... Because they do not believe in me. And it's affected every part of them. The Holy Spirit is the one who has to convict us. We can use our conscience and we should. We can use the law and we can tell people. But they have to be convicted on the inside. It is the Holy Spirit that has to bring the realization of our own sinful condition. And listen, folks. If you know your sinful condition, if you recognize that, it is the... It is by the grace of God. Because you are blind. You are blind. Apart from God's grace, we cannot even accurately assess our situation. We don't even know how sinful we are. And we can try to clean ourselves up, but we cannot please God. We cannot go back to that Garden of Eden apart from our union with Christ. We, we cannot do anything really to change our circumstances because we are enslaved and we are blinded to that enslavement. 
And the very nature of man is so totally corrupt that mankind is unable to do anything to remedy his situation. And say, how do we apply this? I mean, this is hard teaching. Hard teaching. How do we apply it? To the, say, to the unsaved, if you are here and you do not have a union with Christ, if you are not together with Christ, and you are still in your blindness, you are still enslaved to your sinfulness. You need a union with Christ. You need to acknowledge that sinfulness. Turn from that sinfulness. Repent from that sinfulness. And turn to Christ. That's what we must do. That's the, only, that's the only application. If you're an unbeliever, that's the only application for you right now. Is that we are trying to expose your sinfulness. Trying to expose you for what you are with a sinful nature. And you need to acknowledge that. You need to be broken over that. You need to allow the Holy Spirit to convict now, he does that. Number two, if you're saved, what's the application for saved people? Listen, we are to rejoice, folks. <laughs> we are to rejoice when we begin to realize that we were dead in our trespasses and sin. We could do nothing about our blindness and, we, and our enslavement to sin. We could do nothing. And it took the Holy Spirit coming in and convicting us and showing us, yes, you are sinful and breaking us over our sinfulness. Then the only response is thanksgiving and rejoicing over our union with Christ. That's the appropriate application of this. Recognizing the Holy Spirit has set us free from our sinfulness and opened our blind eyes. We once were blind, but now we see so we rejoice. And it's because of God's grace. It's because of God's power. It's nothing within ourselves. We think it is many times, but it's nothing within ourselves. We have to think more of God than we do ourselves. We, we have to realize that we are unable to do anything about our sinful condition. And then we begin to see the power of God to change a life. And that's the power of the gospel, isn't it? early church, they recognized. They recognized the battle. They recognized what was at stake. And and Augustine, he was right. And the early church recognized that. And they esteemed him. And And he taught the church with great teaching from Scripture. And Scripture supports the fact that we are totally depraved. Totally depraved, unable to do anything about our own sinfulness apart from Christ. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I, I thank you, Lord, for your grace in our life. Father, so often we fail to see the power of, of a changed life. Because I think we just don't realize how far we've fallen. We don't realize the standard and we don't realize how far we've gone into our own sinful condition. And Father, even though we are set free from our sinfulness, even though we are now can see and, and we've moved from darkness unto light, so often we ignore that light as believers. And, and we fail to see your grace 
and your power. We, we just think it's just decisions that we made. We just think, oh, I decided for Christ one day. And we fail to realize the power involved, the, the work that was involved in the Holy Spirit coming and convicting us of our own sinfulness, our enslavement to sin, our own blindedness. Lord, may we go away from here rejoicing, rejoicing because of your grace in our life, because of your power, the gospel. And, and, and Lord, may we never get over that fact. We thank you. Now, Lord, as we go away today, may we enjoy our time, may we enjoy our day, but may we never forget where we have come from as believers. And Lord, if there's those who have not put their faith and trust in you, Lord, may they do so today. Today is the opportunity. Today is the day of salvation. May they turn to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to ask you to stand. Heavy things, heavy stuff. It's always hard to hear a sermon about sin and your own sinful condition. But there's much to take heed to. There's many warnings there. And if we can help, we would love to be able to do so. I'll I'll be in the office throughout the week. And you can catch me even today or catch one of our elders and talk about these things. Talk about these things. We have to come to realize where we're from. How far we've fallen. Father, again, we recognize your grace in our life. And we just thank you. Lord, dismiss us with your blessing today. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.